Unless the month Mass Effect will be releasing the Legendary Edition onto modern consoles and PC. But this does raise the question as to why this franchise deserves this remaster treatment. What about it makes this franchise so special after so many years, and how faithful will this remaster actually be? On the surface, Mass Effect seems like any other RPG space story, a la Halo, Gears of War, but what makes the recipe behind the Mass Effect trilogy so amazing, allowing it to capture the imagination and wonder of gamers to this day? Even when other games clone the Mass Effect formula, it's often viewed as a positive or a selling point for people who are, are interested in something similar even though the concept of a game clone is usually a negative. But what really lies ahead for fans with the Mass Effect franchise? Welcome to the Forthright Gaming Podcast. This week, we hope to answer those questions and express what it is that made us fall in love with this franchise. I'm your host, Ian, and with me as always is David. Hello. Now, the first piece of this puzzle with, Bi- with Mass Effect is the developer, Bioware. Uh, before Mass Effect released in 2007, Bioware had made a name for itself on PC with Boulder's Gates and Neverwinter Nights. They were kind of a small developer that was uh, put together by a couple uh, medical doctors uh, who loved gaming on their side, and they decided making simulations. And that's how they ended up with Boulder's Gate and then Neverwinter Nights, which they were really well known for. But they made a huge splash in 2003, and that's probably when I was first introduced to them, which was with their uh, Star Wars uh, RPG, Knights of the Old Republic. And then they struck gold again in 2005 with Jade Empire, which was another kind of period piece of fantasy RPG set in ancient China. Now, one thing all these games had in common was a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about today which are some like their character creations, their decision decisions tree, and they all kind of evolved to what I think Mass Effect culminated to be the perfection of that. Um, now, both these games were major RPGs uh, with thoughtful stories and had great twists with their players, not expecting as well as an action-oriented gameplay. Uh, both games flushed out a D&D-style RPG uh, combat and gameplay style, uh, that was very approachable by anybody. Uh, the only major issue with, is that the game engines don't age very well. Both Dice uh, of the Old Republic and Jade Empire are not the best-looking games these days if you try to play them. Uh, I don't know if you've tried playing any of them recently, but <clears throat> they don't hold up very well. I think Jade Empire holds up a little bit better, but they have like this... It's almost like a foggy, f- uh, soft focus across the entire game that kind of helps it age a little bit more, but it's still like... Hey, their hands are still just what kind of blocks. They don't have movable fingers and stuff. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'm okay with Jade Empire. And I, I, f- I feel like Knights of the Old Republic, its story is very rich, so it is still very replayable. But I would say the, the gameplay mechanics are what make it difficult to play today. You know, that whole churn base, um, you know, it, it's almost like they're trying to elongate the battles so that you're kind of spending more time in the game. Whereas, like, you're kind of just like, all right, like, I know I'm going to beat this guy. But I'm kind of, you know, just rolling the dice when I fight. And yeah, you know how it goes when you play a lot of these older games that are that are really skilled and chance-based. It's very difficult to get into them in today's gaming world. Yeah, and if you know anything about Knights of the Old Republic, because that's probably the one that most people know of, um, that game is a landmark game. They're actually in the process, I think, of trying to remake that as well with, in modern engines, which will be great when they do that, as, that too. But I don't believe that's being done by Bioware. That's being done more like by a fan project, I think. Now, uh, these two games came out. 2005 was when uh, Jade Empire landed. It was on the same engine as uh, Knights of the Old Republic. 
And then 2007 comes and Mass Effect enters. Now, Mass Effect built on a completely different engine on the Unreal 3 engine instead of Bioware's in-house Odyssey engine, um, which gave this game a completely different look and actually the ability to uh, provide greater detail and more complex animations with how uh, the acting and the story was delivered. So this really delivered a high quality this really delivered a high quality and a true interactive cinematic experience at the time of release. While characters were talking to you, you observed details in their outfits, their eye movement, uh, interactions with everybody was completely fully voiced. Uh, so everybody you talked to had something to say and they had an actor acting it. And I'm sure they used some of the same voice actors for multiple roles, but I would say there's a lot of parts throughout this entire franchise where it's like you don't hear the same person's voice over and over again like you do in Skyrim. Skyrim's a good example where like you can hear like the same five actors talking because they didn't bother to <laughs> change their voices for any of the other characters. So um, here having everybody be different and not be so recognizable was a good way to keep you keep players immersed. <clears throat> Bioware also did away with what they had in the background of both Jada Empire and Nice Little Republic, which was their, this D&D dice element. Now, like most people may not realize this, but like if you look into especially KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic, it actually tells you the mechanics, especially when you're equipping weapons, like how you have to have uh, negatives against your dice rolls. And it's basically the game's doing a D20 dice roll when you fight so that when you do your action combat, sometimes you're going to miss, sometimes you're going to hit. Kind of breaks the illusion of an immersion <coughs> of the game because you see somebody hit somebody with a lightsaber and it just says miss. It's like, no, that guy should be cut in half, <laughs> right? So getting, a, getting away from that model, they base more of the game of Mass Effect it being a third-person shooter on your ability to point and aim, but on your skill level as a character with specific weapons. So uh, if you were a soldier, you could use assault rifles, if you and you would level up your skill in assault rifles to make your assault rifle do more damage and hit more accurately not be based off of this dice roll that you have no control over and you don't see that says no you missed or you hit <clears throat> so this made it way more uh immersive way more intuitive and made it more of an action game rather than a semi-term base uh rpg uh the, so other than the game engine what what, what were the real innovations of the series well the series as a whole accomplished something that others had attempted but failed to do before, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But for now, let's focus on the first game and what it captured, what what it was that captured everyone and had them talking about it. Um, I would say it comes down to a few key features uh, that had some expansions later on throughout the series. Uh, first one being the character creator. Uh, you had both a male and female uh, dialogue and decision support uh, for that character, so they were completely voiced. Fully voiced uh, characters that you didn't play as. So, like as I said, every NPC in the game, whether they're part of your main crew or they're just people standing around at a store, if you could talk to them, they had dialogue, and they would talk. They would talk to you, and you have a conversation with them if it opened up for that, right? Uh, cinematic use of the camera. This is one of the things that if you've played KOTOR and, J and Jade Empire and even Dragon Age and you then you look at Mass Effect, you'll notice they do a lot more camera movements like panning and stuff. And um, they have a lot more intuitiveness where it feels like you're watching a movie, I feel like. Would you agree? 
Yeah, and I would even add to that that when they do these, like, you know, you, you transition from those third-person over-the-shoulder shots with gameplay and when you're moving about the world, but then when a cutscene is, is basically interrupting your movement, they actually do these really good jobs of presenting you with, with really high-grade film-level camera shots. It's not like a lazy camera shot of, here's a guy's upper body as he's talking, like an old TV show, right? Like, you and I are talking, camera shot is my belly up. Here you are. Hi, how are you? No, like they actually have like the camera moving. They'll kind of move far away. So the character is in the far background, but it kind of helps break up the monotony of having those repetitive shots. They have shots that kind of focus on certain parts of a character. Um, don't want to spoil anything, but the story wise, you know, for folks who still haven't played this series, but it, it does a really good job of presenting these really minor things and playing them up so that they don't feel so minor when it comes to the camera work. And they definitely take it up a notch each game. It was like in Mass Effect 2, I know there's somebody you can talk to and you'll actually see your squad mate realize that they're in the shot and they'll walk off, walk behind you and then get out of the, of the shot of what's going on. I think like you're being interviewed by a news reporter and so you'll see one of your characters walk away so that they're not caught on camera. Um, and you also see they'll play more and more with it with Mass Effect 2 and 3 to actually improve on. So you actually see a cool progression of, hey, this looks a lot better than just static shots of people standing there and talking to you, to these uh, more cinematic shots. And then you also end up having um, more little animations that they put into it because like when you sit there and you have a conversation with somebody, you shift your weight, you talk, you move, and you'll actually see people do that. Or if a character gets upset while they're talking, they'll turn around and then they'll make a loop back because they're angry about something. Um, that's stuff that we did until this time. We didn't see that in video games. Usually cutscenes was static face looking at you and just saying what it needs to be said. And you repeat and then cut to your shot and you're saying your stuff and going back and forth, back and forth. And that was it. Now, another big thing here is original music. <clears throat> now, I, th I think this is more prevalent in older games than it is in more modern ones because now licensing fees and all that stuff. A lot of older games had a lot of really good original music. This game, this game franchise has a great original soundtrack all throughout all three games. Um, and definitely, if you actually get like a, just a copy of it or even just downloading it, it's definitely worth having. Yeah, Jack, um, Jack Wall, um, his work for the original score side of things was amazing. He kind of adds this really interesting synth sci-fi touch to the series that kind of carries throughout. Um, most people will probably recognize his music when you're looking at the map of the galaxy and you're trying to figure out where you're going to go. That's Jack Wall's music, you know, for, for those who are unaware. Yep. Um, and then one of the biggest things and the thing that everybody talks about with these games is decisions and consequences. The big thing with KOTOR, the big thing with Jade Empire, the whole thing that Bioware was kind of working towards is that they wanted to make decision making actually matter in gaming. Um, so they wanted to make your decisions matter that you make and then have it kind of craft your experience. And you can see how that gets more and more throughout the throughout their their library of titles. Um, and then it's also like a brilliant mix of like several different genres, right? So this is has some legitimate comedy in there, some sci-fi, some drama, action, along as well some well-executed plot and character-driven narratives because it's not just about your main character story and hit the main plot. Your side characters have stories that kind of uh, that definitely cross into the main plot because that's why they're there. Where like a lot of old RPGs, it was, hey, I need to go talk to this person. Hey, well, in order to talk to this person, you need to go save them from whatever BS thing that's happening with them. <laughs> and then that person decides they're going to tag along with you. Not that you have to bring them along with you. Um, where, this game, where these games and how the stories progress 
there's a good reason why everybody's there. They're not just there for hey, hey, I need a mage character. Hey, I need a ranger character. Yes, some of them kind of fit those descriptions, but they're not just there because they have those skills. <clears throat> and then one of the biggest things was believable world exploration. Um, so like your home was your ship. Um, there were business districts, executive areas on space stations and uh, different uh, planet bases, uh, immigration screenings in areas. And then, uh, of course, our favorite, like some of the different clubs that you had. So you got to see a good idea of like how people spent their time in this universe. That's one of the biggest things that this is this game franchise built a believable universe just like Star Wars did when they came out in the 70s. People believed and thought like, hey, wow, this is a real tangible universe. They didn't cut any corners with it. Um, so those are like the biggest, big main bullet points of like what this franchise kind of brought to storytelling um, where a lot of these things like the uh, you know business districts, the clubs, um, the side characters, the decision making and stuff. If you look back at old RPGs, even ones that are beloved, those things aren't there because it takes more time to build a club for people to hang out in, right? Where old Final Fantasy games is just, oh, here's the end. There's a bunch of people sitting at a table. No, we're not going to play music. No, we're not going to be playing games. But they basically made something very believable. Like any of the clubs in uh, Mass Effect, you could go to and you can, and there are a lot of them, especially in Mass Effect 2, I thought uh, Afterlife was actually designed like a lot of real clubs I've been to where it's like, cool, you have a main section, they're playing one type of music, you go to a different part of the club, downstairs, upstairs, <laughs> and it's completely different music and different vibe. Um, most places, if they're going to do an entertainment, most games, if they're going to do an entertainment section for characters to hang out in, it's just one slice of it. It's not realistic that hey people are gonna have different tastes but they're all stuck in the space station so they're all gonna go to those one club so this club's gonna try and cater to more than just one type of customer you know um one one thing i want to say too is when you mentioned like the gameplay elements earlier and like how it was very different i think what really made mass effect different was in a turn-based rpg you would have like a mage that did magic you would have a knight that would do you know brute force but in this game it was action-oriented, so it wasn't like this churn-based balance of gameplay. You actually had to, you know, do I go with the assault soldier? Or do I have somebody who has, you know, warp, right? Because you could have people with the with the abilities that are kind of different. You could always balance it out any other way, but you had to balance it through the action. And I'm trying to think of any other game that was like it before then, but I can't remember if there were any was a game that kind of balanced it. Yeah, because before, basically... Either like Final Fantasy games, you had like a, a huge party that you just take with like a movie before to five characters. So you can basically cover all your roles, right? Other games where you have less than like Mass Effect only lets you have two people in your party on any given mission. So you basically have to take what your own play style is and what your character's strengths and weaknesses and pick characters to go with them that, that complement it or fix it. Like... As a soldier in Mass Effect 1, the original one, you didn't have the ability to train in all weapons, I don't think. I don't think like the sniper rifle is one of the ones that you don't have an ability to train in. But Garrus is a sniper, and he can uh, train a sniper rifle. So you give you put all the sniping points into him, and you take him with you, and then he'll start picking people off from distances instead of having to get ambushed, right? Those are the types of decisions you had to make, especially when picking your party, because it Definitely give you give you a bar in Mass Effect like, hey, here's your military strength, here's your tech strength, and here's your biotic strength, and you want to balance it out so that you be prepared for any situation that kind of came your way. Games before that really just had, 
okay, you're a mage. Do you want mages with you or do you want a fighter and a ranger? And it was just based <laughs> off of those stats, not necessarily specific things. And the cool thing was that characters weren't uh, locked into one thing. Like the Garish character I mentioned, yeah, he was my sniper, but he doesn't have to be a sniper. He can just be a full-blown soldier. Um, your your tech expert doesn't have to be a tech expert completely. They could focus on nothing. And they had a couple of characters that were a mixture of two or three different kind of classes that, depending on how you level them up, depended on how they play. <clears throat> now, um, as far as character creations go, go, I mean, this isn't a game that invented character creator. We've had uh, Oblivion and tons of other games prior that gave you the ability to make your own character, right? Um, I would just say... They did a really good job creating characters in their first game, and then they definitely expanded on it in the other ones to the point where I remember there's websites where you can actually find character code so that you can put in that will like, hey, this your character will look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Your character will look like Samuel L. Jackson. Here's one for Michael Jackson. Here's one for whatever character you think of, somebody who's able to create a celebrity face and put it into the <laughs> game, basically, um, which always makes it even funnier to play. Um Especially when, like, with their big, the other big thing that they threw in this game was the Paragon Renegade morality uh, decisions in here, where you could have a Samuel Jackson who's not always going to be the hero. He's going to be a smartass and talk shit to everybody. Or you could have the Boy Scout Captain America character that's always doing the right thing. Uh, That's another major, major aspect of the franchise that that carries all the way through it, but it, it seems like in their other titles that Bioware made, they they started dropping that concept. And so it wasn't so black and white. So kind of just mentioned it with the Paragon and the Renegade path. It's the good and evil path on the game. So uh, one of the things, like I said, is that throughout your dialogue in this game, you were able to earn points based off of your actions. And then you can actually put skill points in the first game into things like charm or intimidation that affected this. It lets you either give a standard answer that would progress the game or you'd actually get a special option to either say something either a little bit more intuitive or more or more intuitive to the situation, but it would either be something very good, something like a nice person would say, or something an asshole would say to get to the point, right? Like I think one of the first decisions that this comes up is people are, are hiding out and it's like, hey, you guys need to stay here and if you have anything you can help us, we appreciate it. Another one's like Hey, I'm going to pull a gun on you. Give me all the stuff you have, or I'm going to shoot you. Uh, it's that type of um, difference between those two things where the same result ends up happening, but you're either remembered as being an asshole or remembered as being a good guy for it. Because um, the big one is like, yeah, you either tell the guy to calm down or you punch him and knock him out. And like <laughs> the people, characters react to it, even your own part is like, whoa, that's pretty harsh, dude. Why are you, why are you swinging the fist at people? And then you make a decent point for it. Everyone's like, oh, okay, well, I guess, I guess I understand that. But it's still, they're taken aback by the actions you make. So I almost see it when I play Mass Effect. Because, like, if you play it a, a lot like I have, I'm crafting my own movie and making my my main character either anti-hero or a hero throughout how I'm having them respond. And in regards to your decisions, this won't really spoil much for most gamers. But just in the first game alone... There's one major decision that will decide whether or not a character will be in the rest of the series for you. And that's ba- that's a pretty obvious one about how you have to choose between Caden and Ashley. And you have to choose between one or the other as being sent into battle. And however you make that decision, one of them won't come back. 
And that's one of the more obvious choices. There's obviously more subtle ones, but that goes to show you the level of of impact these decisions have. You will not see that character for the rest of the game. And this is like, what, I want to say maybe a third into the first game, a halfway, something like that. It's not that long into the first game, and you don't have him for the rest of the series. Yeah, I mean, that's a character that some people will tell you, and that's the great thing about this franchise, is that because the way these things that they brought into the franchise, into these RPGs, people have a different experience. Maybe you romance a different character than I did, but where you decided to let Ashley live and Caden die, and I and I didn't. I have a whole storyline that I can have with Caden throughout all three games. That that person is gone; they're not coming back. There's and it's not just one character in Mass Effect One. There's actually two characters that can just be completely wiped from the rest of the franchise. <clears throat> it's all based on your decision making and how you choose what you choose to say and do. Now, like elements with this and great storytelling, like I said, it basically gives you a sci-fi movie that you get to one make yourself the main character, you get to play as them, and it, everything moves in such a, mo- a such a smooth and immersive way. Dialogue options come up before somebody's done talking to you, so that you can make a selection, so that your character can't speak in time with a real conversation if you wanted to do so. You could wait till everybody stops and then kind of judge your and kind of make a decision what choice you want to make. Or you could be like, okay, cool, I'm going to answer it this way. And then you'll see the conversation flow like a natural conversation instead of always pausing and breaking. Mass Effect 1 was really, really good about immersion and keeping you in the world. Almost to a fault, to the point where like they didn't have loading screens. They hid loading screens behind either cutscenes like most games do or what they did, which, which they're infamously known for, are very slow-moving elevators. Where you get an elevator, and it could take five to six minutes for it to get to its spot, especially the normal one that literally goes like 12 feet. <laughs> like they should just be <laughs> a stairwell to get to the hangar and your ship instead of an elevator because it takes so long. But that's because they had to load all the assets. And the interesting thing, what I liked about it, where a lot of people groan about it, is that at least in a lot of the major elevators, your characters would have conversations with each other about what's going on. Like if one person was upset with how the government decided made a decision or something or your orders, they would talk about it in the elevator or they had banter amongst each other talking shit and you see how they would react to each other. So it made you more endeared to the characters that you were playing with um, to a point like people love their characters. Everybody has like their main uh, posse that they roll with. Yeah, it was deep world building, world building for sure, especially when the characters, if you had two characters with you that didn't like each other, it was nice to have that conversation in the elevator. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Now, this game brings another big thing I mentioned earlier, which was that they're trying to do something that other people had tried to do before but had failed. And that's the concept that... Casey Hudson, who's the main director and basically this is his brainchild of the story, pitched the game to the execs at Bioware saying, hey, I want to make a three-part game. I want to tell the story in three parts. I want my decisions to carry from the first game to the second to the third. That was the the grand scheme from the get-go. A lot of uh, games and a lot of movies even franchise out there, they're not designed that way. They're usually like, hey, let's make a really good story. Let's kind of leave it open-ended, and if it does really well, we'll make a sequel to it, or we won't. Halo's a perfect example of that, right? Halo 1 plays out perfectly with with a very big conclusion, and then a, then like kind of an uh, open-ended 
ending in it. So it's like, well, if this game sucks, we've told a story and we don't have to make another one. Or if it's really good, we'll make a franchise out of it and we'll continue telling stories. But because it wasn't planned out, you can like definitely look at Halo 2 and say, uh, hey, look, there's definitely similarities to it. And this happens with a lot of franchises, right? Um, and even the creators of Halo will tell you that Halo 2 is the story of Halo 1 through the eyes of the Covenant, which is the en- the opposite enemy force in Halo, right? And if you like look at Rocky and Rocky 2, it's the exact same story, but with just <laughs> a different ending through a different point of view because they weren't planning on making another movie or making another game. It's like, oh, great. They want us to make another one. This is really successful. What do we do? Whereas Mass Effect... One, two, and three are very are three very distinct, different stories that all connect and connect very well uh, to tell a huge, grand narrative. Um, but they all clearly have their ending points in it, and then and it's not. I don't feel like you're left off thinking, "Hey, this is a cliffhanger. I don't know what's going to happen next." It definitely adds that question at the end of uh, each game, like, "Hey, something bigger is coming." But it's never left in the point where I felt like, "Yeah, they don't have a plan," and then the next game totally speaks to the fact that they have a story they're going to tell in this game that's going to make every that's going to connect everything else. That's something we didn't, we never saw before. Now, there were other people who attempted this. Uh, one game definitely being Advent Rising, which they advertised when they came out of that game. This is going to be a three-part game. We're going to do this one. Then we're going to have two other titles that are going to explain the rest of the story. But that game did so horribly bad at a retail launch that they basically scrapped it and we never find out what happens. And that game literally ends on a cliffhanger with no idea how the story ends <laughs> because they thought they were going to make two more games and they completely basically botched it because they didn't take the time to do what Mass Effect did, which was give you full world building, give you characters, flesh out the graphics, make sure everything worked perfectly. Uh, and so they take, took shortcuts like any other uh, game does or major media production does to get out on time. Cause like the one thing I harp on a lot with the uh, fully voice acting is that games like uh, Yakuza or even the uh, judgment was just recently re-released on Xbox really great game. But when it comes to side missions, they stop voice acting characters and it's just <laughs> all tech. So then it's like, okay, here's a game that has a lot of story, a lot of text, and it does as well with their side quests, but the side quests are all text. So it totally now makes you realize, oh, yeah, I'm playing a game. I don't, and I'm not immersed anymore. Mass Effect wanted you to be completely immersed. Now, um, I would say the first game came out. I This is a time before, like, you had YouTube. Well, YouTube had just come out, but you didn't have, like, massive gaming news everywhere where no matter where you looked, you saw somebody talking about stuff, right? So, you know, that time I wasn't really following Bioware. I literally bought this game on the whim of seeing one ad for it the day it came out and went down to the game store. It's like, oh, it looks cool. Let me buy this. And was amazed by it, right? When Mass Effect 2 came out, people that I didn't even realize owned an Xbox were hitting me up saying, hey, you're a gamer. Should I play Mass Effect 2? And it's all because the marketing campaign on Mass Effect 2 blew it up. Um, from their E3 presentation to their trailers, the mainstream took notice of it. Um, so still using the Unreal 3 engine, they didn't go and upgrade the... I would say they didn't upgrade the graphics, but they didn't upgrade the engine, but in using an engine for so long, you start 
understanding more tricks you can do with it to make it look better and work better and work better. So there's that obvious progression from two, from one, two, and three, that the game looks better, looks sharper, things move better because they're understanding how to use the engine uh, with every iteration. Some other things happened during this time too. Like for example, Mass Effect One was originally published by Microsoft on the Xbox 360, and then literally, like I want to say, <laughs> almost at the time of release, if not soon after. That's when EA purchased Bioware. And after they purchased Bioware, uh, I'm sorry, after EA purchased Bioware, Bioware then had access to all these tools that were basically internal to EA Studios because, you know, EA kind of shares technology across their studios. And that's kind of what got them to improve a lot of the mechanics. Granted, this is also why you saw some odd shifts, you know, going from Mass Effect 1 to Mass Effect 2, like unlimited ammo. (laughs) You know, you had unlimited ammo in the first Mass Effect in the second one, you you kind of had this limited ammo, which, from a story perspective, kind of broke things. But you know, the gameplay was better, so I think ultimately it was a win-win. But that's kind of how a lot of the shifts in technology and and kind of the management side of it modified the games going on uh, onward. Yeah, what I would say is like Mass Effect One is like Casey Hudson's like purest view. Like this is the universe I'm going to create. It's be this. Mass Effect Two is somebody came in and said, okay, that's really cool. But unlimited ammo is stupid, dude. We need to have ammo because it's a game. Remember, people have to have tension that they're going to run out of ammo or they're going to have to figure out a new strategy when something happens. So it's like as the games go, they progressively get edited down to be even better instead of adding a lot of bad stuff. Now, we we talked about Mass Effect 3. There's some debate on that. But I would say a lot of changes that they made in Mass Effect 2 help improve it as a game and also – which also – made more people more interested into it because the biggest change there and one of the biggest things that they're doing with this remastered legendary edition is they got to go back they had to go back to the first game and change the combat because the combat in two and three completely changed to being more of a cover shooter and more in lines with like gears of war as gameplay where hey there's obviously cover you you crouch down you look over cover and you shoot stuff and Completely kind of got rid of the whole, hey, let's level up your skills and specific weapons and left it completely based on how well can you, you as the player shoot stuff. If you can hit it, you'll hit it. If you miss it, that's all on you. So got completely rid of any type of chance running in the background um, and completely gave it to the skill of the player instead of some random stat that you have to build up. And they definitely trimmed down a lot of the inventory and some of the RPG stuff with leveling up to it instead of having like... 15 20 things that you have to that you have to spend your uh level points on they basically give you like four and then an extra one when you max something out right <laughs> which some people say hey that's a step back that's more action based that's less rpg but i would say one of the biggest things i complained about in the first game was like one i spend my time going through a giant inventory of selling weapons and armor that i don't need and I have to make and I have to constantly go through and make sure my crew had all the best armor and then get rid of everything because you just collect a ton of stuff. And RPGs have that problem of of collecting junk. And at least Mass Effect didn't have junk classified items, but items you don't need quickly become worthless and you need to get rid of it. Um, I don't know why RPGs do that. Uh, it's one of the things that's really weird. Like I know Dragon Age did it um, and a few other ones where like, here's an item that's just classified as junk. It's specifically designed for you to pick up and sell it. And not do anything with it. I'm like, why'd you waste time doing that? That's, I don't need that. I don't need to go through and unload 
a ton of shit to a, a vendor every time I go to town. Just give me what I need to play the game. That's kind of what they edited down in Mass Effect 2 is that now you got stuff that you needed and you got a lot less garbage. Um, and they basically gave you upgrades to your armor instead of having to buy completely new armors all the time. <clears throat> um, so those are the kind of the major, major changes was definitely the cover shooter mechanic. Um, the marketing on the game was like through the roof. Like it, it was advertised like it was a blockbuster movie coming out for the coming out in the fall, basically. Like, hey, here's this guy. He's gonna go on a suicide mission. He's to put together a crew. Totally caught the imagination of mainstream gamers to where a lot of people never even played the first one. They just jumped in at two and went on from there. I would I would also say Mass Effect Two is kind of like a textbook gameplay experience as far as game gameplay mechanics go, because you have cover shooter. You have story, and then when you break it down, you have a big boss you fight at the end. Where a lot of games that are trying to tell mainly a story-based thing, um, you may not have a massive boss to fight at the end. This is like textbook gaming completely. And then Mass Effect 3 is a good combination of massive storytelling and gameplay. Um now, the other big thing that they did here to Mass Effect was they expanded the cast. So I think you had a total of uh, five crew members that you could recruit and add to your party in Mass Effect 1. They expanded it to, I think, 11 to 12 characters that you recruit and add to your party uh, that you can take with you. And they had a... It went way beyond just, I'm a mage, I'm a soldier, I'm a ranger, I'm a thief. It went from... <clears throat> People who had definite mixtures of those abilities um, and def and way different motivations. And since this story was sold off, sold as a uh, suicide mission and a kind of like gathering the gathering the team of professionals, you had a lot of different people with motivations and that they also added in loyalty missions that you had to play to keep those people loyal to the main mission. Um which had dire consequences. Again, making your decisions really mattered. Like if you skip doing stuff, people died. And once again, if somebody dies, they're not coming back in the next game. They're not suddenly retconned and saying, oh yeah, I survived that uh, big explosion like Sergeant Johnson in Halo. Like they're <laughs> dead. <laughs> um, so that expanded cast of having having more characters in there. And then they also threw in some Hollywood faces. So at the time, uh, Martin Sheen, who's definitely a famous actor, and everybody, most people will know him from Apocalypse Now or any of his major movies that he's done, um, plays a major character who's not necessarily a villain, not necessarily a hero in this game, but he's <clears throat> somebody you interact with quite a bit. And then they also added uh, Yvonne Stravowski, who at the time was getting a lot of notoriety from the TV show Chuck. Uh, and then she's gone on to do some other movies, but like she's not, I wouldn't say she's the world's greatest actress. She was just very popular at the time. And they took both um, Martin Sheen's likeness and definitely her likeness and threw it on the character. Uh, I'd say the elusive man still has like some of his own original character looks, but you can see like how Martin Sheen fits that character very well. Um, throwing two well-known celebrity faces in there is what got a lot of people interested in, in this game and uh, have them jump into it. Um, another thing that they added, um, or didn't really add, but expanded on was romances. So Mass Effect 1, you had romances, but you could literally only romance three characters. I think it was Caden, Ashley, and Liara. 
And it had to be circumstantial too. So yeah. like I, I don't I think the gay relationships were introduced in the second title. I don't think they existed in the first one. And Liara is an alien, so it's more like, you know, Arturian Poontang, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say like and it's also a telltale notice of the times, right? So it was cool to have a lesbian relationship in Mass Effect One if you were a female character with Liara, but um Caden and Ashley were straight. So you could only ever romance the uh, your opposite sex with them. Mass Effect Two lets you romance um, what four or five characters. So there's uh, I think almost all the char- all the characters you pick up you could possibly romance except for Kasumi and um, the mercenary Zaid. Zaid, yeah, yeah. So everyone else. Well, Garris, ta- I, don't, I don't think Tally could romance either. I think in the second he- game you can ro- you can romance Tally in the second game. Okay. I know. I didn't. I, I didn't know. go that route. <laughs> <laughs> That's my route. But you can romance Garish, you can romance Tally, because that was a, one of the feedbacks they got from the first game. Was a lot of people were like, "Hey, I really like Garish. I really like Tally. I like their story and their character development. Why can't I romance them?" So they give you the option to romance them in the second game. You can romance uh, the new human characters, and you can romance um, the lizard guy Thane. No. Which, yeah. Some people, some people are thirsty for Thane, man. I don't know what it is, but they are thirsty as hell for him. Uh, he so was sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you gotta try everything once, right? Get it before he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so they expanded that out, and that's the funny thing is that with later games, um, I believe not Mass Effect Andromeda, but it was like. Um, anthem they're saying oh we're not gonna have relationships anymore and that's a shock to me because you can't have good right if you're gonna make a really good story and good writing it, it good stories are character interactions with each other right and good plot and if you're not gonna if you're going to completely keep romances out of it which you have the choice as a player not to romance anybody if you don't want to they actually have it scripted that way so you can go through the game that way but if you're going to have a deep connected story and make people care about your characters, having the ability to romance them helps deepen that bond and helps that immersiveness. Um, but they they went really overboard in Mass Effect Two with the romance because it's not just your crew, not just the people you pick up for your mission that you can romance. You could romance just a random crew member on the sh- on the ship of Kelly, mm-hmm. right? Where like, I don't think you actually go into a full relationship. But she said giving you a strip show in your in your uh, room if you if you go that path with her. I think. I don't uh, know. I, I I went for Jack, Ashley, Liara. You're the one who told me uh, you could romance her. I went and did. It. I was like, oh wow, she actually goes goes to your room, and gives you a strip uh, like a strip show. Yeah, I'm honestly I I've played through the game so many times. I, at that point, I was just like, I just gotta try it. You know, let me just try stuff because sometimes you can get surprised by what the game lets you do. That's kind of the the joy I would say of the Mass Effect series, especially after the first title when you have more options. Yeah, and like you said, it's like playing these games multiple times. Like you'll play through it once and you'll get the whole story and you'll enjoy it. But if you play through it multiple times, you can then craft like this is my perfect space opera movie that I'm gonna be in and like make your character the renegade asshole to some people and make him date who you want to date or whatever, vice versa, however you want to do it. You get to make that those decisions and it's always cool to like I wonder if I do this. Oh, cool. I can actually do that. Because as gamers, like you're always kind of pushing the boundary of what can I, can I, what can I do and what can I not do to kind of find out where did the developer decide not to do, uh, to stop working. 
Um, and Mass Effect, they did such a good job to where it was really hard to find those boundaries to where like, wow, this is just massive. Now, it's not endless like a procedural game like uh, No Man's Sky, but I would say games that use procedural generation are kind kind of are lacking because they don't know what's going to be created so they can't actually make stories or anything about what's out there or what's being generated whereas if you handcraft every planet you handcraft every interaction every character that this that you can run into you can now script all the different permutations of it which is a lot of work but creates such a great immersive experience which is not something that you get from uh movies and a lot of games sometimes they their immersion always gets broken yeah no man's sky is kind of like a bucket of jello whereas this is like a really rich piece of cheesecake there's a lot each bite has a lot of flavor you're not you know when you by the time you're done with it you know if you're really looking for that richness that's what you go for and i think a lot of this goes back to the story because in the first game you have this villain in Saren, who is this somewhat likable guy like he is a specter like you are you're the first human specter right he's one of the the earlier specters of the turian race and you kind of have i wouldn't say you can befriend him but at the end of the first game you can kind of like him and make him like you and that kind of makes the final battle a little easier as you know and in the second game it starts off with you dying <laughs> you, yeah that's you one of the big die. things with the marketing that they came out saying oh commander shepherd your character will die in this game and everybody's like Okay, so I get the end. I'm gonna die. Is this like gonna be the end of the story? And it's like, no, first 15 minutes, you're dead. It's like, oh <laughs> shit, they weren't kidding. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's interesting how I mean that's how they really bring in the elusive man. That's <clears throat> that's how they bring in Miranda or Yvonne's character into the game because when Shepard dies, he originally was with this crew that was essentially a branch of the Earth military, right? But now he's really more part of this this side group that's kind of pro-human and you kind of have to make this choice of like do i want to go full pro-human do i really want to go in between do i want to go with what i was going on in the first game because you can kind of switch lanes and do that without being impeded by your decisions in the first game other than maybe a handful of those decisions and i think that's why the narrative was so well put together with with mass effect 2 is you were able to see a lot of pivot in the the narrative and it didn't hamper the experience, even if you, like like myself, I liked space exploration, I liked exploring the planets, I liked the elevator scenes, but I could live without them. You know, 2 actually kind of gave you things that kind of compensated for that, and I think that's that's a testament of how well the game was put together. And here's here another fact about these games that uh, people who did not play the first one don't realize, right? <laughs> and even people who did might miss this. Like, the concept of this pro-human group that you end up working for in Mass Effect 2 who kind of ultimately ended up being kind of a antagonist fra- faction in Mass Effect 3, they weren't just made up for Mass Effect 2. It didn't just all of a sudden, hey, here's this group, Cerberus, who's here, and you're going to work for them, but they're all pro-human. There's missions in the first game that are side missions that are completely things you can miss if you don't you listen to conversations or you don't try and talk to every character, because you don't have to. Uh, there's a mission... There's a couple missions that tie to that group and let you know that, hey, there's this pro-human group out there. Nobody knows how they're funded. And they're running experimentations. They're doing all this weird, doing all this kind of unethical stuff out there, trying to make humans humans uh, top of the food chain in the galaxy. Uh, that is like non-consequential to the first game's story. It's just kind of a, kind of like 
a world building thing there. But to see that come back to become a main thing in the second and third game, it's like, oh yeah, remember this one mission where I ran into it? We're talking about Cerberus. That's these guys. And there's dialogue for that in the second game in the beginning where your character either knows who Cerberus is because it gives you an option to say, oh yeah, I know who you guys are. Or an option like, I've never heard of you. And they'll mention like, hey, well, you've had some run-ins with us in the past. So you should have known it. So maybe something's wrong. So that's kind of that world building stuff that you may think is non-consequential when you come across it originally, but then ends up being bigger and bigger things. Now, <clears throat> when we come, when we get to Mass Effect Three, yeah, we get to Mass Effect Three. What's what's the big thing here, right? Like, so they've evolved the engine, got better using those tools with uh, Unreal Three, but kind of the biggest thing here is that. One thing usually publishers and franchise games don't do well is that they can never say that they're 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 done. Hey, here's the ending. We're over. The story's done, because they want to keep making more money. And so publishers push over, make another title, do this or that, uh, keep the story going. Hence the reason why we have Master Chief still going like seven games strong. And it's like, dude, his story is done. He saved the <laughs> universe once already. He doesn't need to keep saving it over and over again. Let somebody else do it. And the cool thing with Mass Effect is that it's a, such a rich universe that you can make games in that universe that don't have to do anything with this uh, story here, which they did. There's a ton of spinoff games for mobile, iOS, and stuff that came out that are other stories happening in this universe without Shepard or his crew or anything uh, going on with that, um, as well as their integration with the comics and what stuff. But Mass Effect 3 is the definitive end to the story that you've been playing. Your character, Ma uh, Commander Shepard, has a beginning in Mass Effect 1, and they have a definitive end in Mass Effect 3. Depending on how, how your game ended, basically. Um, larger consequences for your decisions. So, like, the first game, you make decisions about people specifically in your squad. The second game, your decisions and how fast you did stuff would affect your squad and affect your crew on your ship. People that were just there either filing the ship or being uh, ancillary staff like the cooks or just people who are on your ship running um, stuff that you would definitely need on a spaceship, right? Like the doctor, you need a uh, counselor for your crew, you need somebody checking diagnostics all the time, engineering. You made decisions in the second game that those people would either live or die based off of what you did. The third game's decisions we're on even grander scale. You would wipe out an entire race if you made the wrong decision one way or the other. Um, and a lot of people, depending on how their alignments were set up, uh, because some of those choices that would let you either save everybody or not save everybody are not available if you don't build up the reputation of always being the good guy or always being the renegade, you wouldn't get that option. So like, the game forces you not to play the middle of the road. If you try to play the middle of the road the entire time, all the extra dialogue options that could maybe even save somebody in a life or death situation or prevent somebody from hating you and leaving were not available if you didn't say, no, I'm going to be a paragon or I'm going to be a renegade. If you played it in the middle the whole time, it'd be like, oh, there's those options that would end this fight that these two people are having uh, and make them calm down, but I can't use it because I didn't bother to stick to one side or the other. Anything to add to that, David? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, when I played the game, I went full on either way. You know, I think 
if I could offer people a personal recommendation of how to play this game, I would say your first playthrough is play the game honestly and see how your decisions come out. Because that's how I played the game, and it was like, oh, shit, like, that just happened. You know, you're like, oh, that's like that was a bad decision? How is that a bad decision? And you're like, oh, that's how that's a bad decision. So you kind of get these nice surprises. And then when you get to your second and third playthroughs, if you want to go that far, mind you, you know, you could always kind of go more towards one direction or another because now you have a good idea of what's a Paragon choice versus what's a Renegade choice because there's a lot of decisions and a lot of it doesn't seem so obvious. And if you play in the middle, the best game I could probably compare this to is Catherine, um, which is if you kind of try to play in the middle of like, well, I don't want to get that Catherine, I want to get that Catherine, but I want to leave my decisions open, you don't get either (laughs) because you're playing too much in the middle. Whereas in the Mass Effect series... If you kind of lean one way or another, it's kind of obvious how your decisions go. And then there's some other things that kind of play into it, like, do I want to take Cerberus side? Do I want to take these alien side? There's things like that that kind of, you, at some point, you have to choose sides. And if you don't choose sides, it tends, tends to make the story a little less, I guess, unimpressive. But that's just my take from it. I think if you, like, you don't choose sides on stuff, you, you will definitely end up in the situation where you don't get the outcome you want. And like... One of the things that a lot of people will talk about Witcher 3 is that, like, you can try and romance either Gerald's girlfriend or, like, the other chick that he likes. If you try to romance both of them at the same time, they basically tie you up and leave you. <laughs> like, and everybody's talking, like, oh, that's so many videos. Like, dude, they did that in Mass Effect 1 in 2007. If you try to, <laughs> if you try to hook up with Ashley and Liara, they both get pissed at you and then you end up alone. <laughs> If you're lucky, you might be able to salvage it and one of them might hook up with you. But basically, usually what happens is like, nope, you get nobody uh, crying on your uh, crying on your shoulder or helping you out when it happens at the end of anybody to romance. And like I said, that's a decision you can actually make throughout the whole game. You can say, hey, first game, I'm going to be a full-blown military soldier and keep everything professional. Save the day. Don't let relationships get in the way. Second game, fuck, I died. I need to live my life the best I can while I'm here. I'm going to fuck anything I can. <laughs> <laughs> and just try to romance everybody, you know? That's, um, those are cool decisions that you can actually make within within the game. Now, say Mass Effect 3, uh, with it having those big decisions there where uh, now it's not just something that's impacting you. It's impacting whole races in the universe. Because that whole game is all about, hey, there's no more time for anything. This big conflict that we've been hinting at, it's finally here. It's like Game of Thrones Season 8. Here comes the big battle. And guess what? We left the lights on so you can actually see what's going on. <laughs> and unlike years, unlike uh, Game of Thrones where are like, here's a big battle. It's all in the dark. You don't see anything. Like, this pays off everything that you wanted to pay off on. Which kind of brings us to the controversy of Mass Effect 3, which is... People like me who are in the minority, I was absolutely fine with how the game ended. I played as Commander Shepard. I gave my life to save the universe. Since I died, I don't get to see what happens after the fact. I just die knowing I saved the the universe, right? Fans were massively upset about this. This game got such high ratings until people got to the end. And then they review-bombed the hell out of it. They complained about it. They sent Bioware... Uh, like what three different color cupcakes because the ending basically came <laughs> down to three different color uh, cutscenes, which I will agree that to me seems lazy. You're gonna have this, have all your decisions come down to we're gonna do one cutscene and we're just gonna change the color of the cutscene three different times so that we can say it was different instead of giving me three completely unique cutscenes for how the game ends. But 
the story ending with me not seeing what happens to my crew, not knowing what happens after the fact, I was okay with because, hey, I lived the life of Commander Shepard. Commander Shepard died. He doesn't get to know. He just dies knowing you made the sacrifice. I think that's the story element they're really trying to tell. That's where Mass Effect 3 has an even bigger impact on the game industry, right? This is where fans were getting listened to, which is somewhat a good thing, somewhat a bad thing, right? Um, but this is where I would say the toxic fan base kind of comes in because of how angry people were with it. Bioware went back and then they changed the ending so that uh, you could now see what happened in the aftermath of depending on your choices. Um, I feel like they almost half-assed it because it was a lot of like, here's concept art of these characters surviving yeah. versus redoing cutscenes for it. Um, I think the only thing that they did do in addition, uh, which I thought was really nice, is that now there's a possibility that you could have survived depending on which ending you pick and if you've done enough of the of the game's quest in it. One of the things with this game was that they threw in multiplayer with Mass Effect 3 because EA was ham-fisting loot boxes and, and multiplayer into everything. So you actually end up with a really good multiplayer in Mass Effect 3, um, but they tied it to, like, hey, if you do multiplayer you'll get your military readiness of the galaxy up, and if you get up high enough, you'll get the best ending. A lot of people seem to think that if you don't play the multiplayer, you couldn't get the best ending. You actually could. You just have to do every single thing in the game. But being a massive RPG like this, you can miss stuff if you don't hang around and hear conversations. So a lot of people felt that they had to do the multiplayer in order to get the best ending, and so there's some controversy there. But what really hit home was people did not like the end of this game. So they complained about it. Bioware went back. They changed it and fixed it to where it's a little bit more acceptable. And people started listening. And this is where I say the industry now at this point started listening to fans and lost the concept that, yes, you're making a product, but you're not making a service. You're making art. You're not beholden to the fans of your art to do what they want you to do. You do what you want to do because it's your art. So tell your story. And guess what? Some people will love it. Some people will hate it. That's just what happens. Let people react to it instead of like, oh, okay, you didn't like that. Let me go back and rechange everything. And that's where we have now games as a service. They're constantly changing shit. They're constantly adding or re redoing or tweaking stuff because whoever the loud group is, whether that's the minority or the majority, says, hey... I play as this character, and I'm always getting my ass kicked. You need to nerf everybody so I can play better. It's like, no, you don't nerf the rest of the game because one group is bitching about it. You say, get get good, scrub. <laughs> <laughs> and, stop, and stop whining about it. Um, but this is the turning point in the industry where everybody started listening to people on Reddit, started listening to fan groups, and some of it's, I would say some of it's good, but you have to like take fan feedback with a grain of salt. And not implement every fucking thing that they tell you to do. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to the elevators thing, right? A lot of people liked it. A lot of people liked the space exploration in the first game. I mean, even if you cut out the elevators, I actually didn't mind that cutout as much. But the the, the planet exploration was a nice touch because you kind of get to see things. You have these, like you said, immersion, right? Like you're fully immersed in this world. You never lose sight of your character and there's a certain thing about it that helps you stay in in shepherd's mindset the moment you see a loading screen it's a reminder you're in a game mm -hmm. and and i feel like that's one of the the the, the down steps from an immersion standpoint that mass effect 2 and 3 took and and going to your point about the story the big shift for me really that that took a lot of stuff away was 
when people went down this route of I didn't like the original <laughs> ending, this took away something that had been discussed. And we talked about this to some extent. We also talked about this with our friend Chris, who, who also played the, the hell out of this game, which was Indoctrination Theory. And Indoctrination Theory, you know, for, for those who aren't familiar, it's basically this idea that during Mass Effect 1, after the events of Mass Effect 1, he had succumbed to indoctrination by the Reapers. And in Mass Effect 2, he's not really dead. He doesn't die at the beginning of Mass Effect 2. That's just him going through the indoctrination in his mind. And essentially, when you get to the end of Mass Effect 3, right, if you get to the good ending where Shepard wakes up in the rubble or he kind of like twitches in the rubble, right, that's you real like having this possible realization that, oh, he just woke up from indoctrination. And... You know, to even compound upon this further, right? When 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 Bioware was pressed about this at a panel, they actually kind of gave this no comment response. So a lot of people were like, "Oh, this is kind of cool." Like this idea of indoctrination theories is really interesting because it also opens up the ability to do a Mass Effect Four, kind of play up this whole indoctrination, and then kind of Mass Effect Four being this finale being different because if you don't survive indoctrination, maybe you come out indoctrinated in full or you've overcome it, and that's Mass Effect 4, right? That's what a lot of people were really talking about at the time. I know that's obviously now that's not the conversation, but this is very much was the conversation at that oh, time. Oh yeah, their their forum was full of just people talking about this. And like there's different things like you say like the theory you're talking about is one that where he's indoctrinated from the beginning and what what this, what this really means is that uh the main protag- antagonist of this franchise is this entity called the Reapers. That's kind of the cosmic core part of it. And the power the Reapers have is that when you're in proximity to them, they can make people change their way of thinking to come to their side. Oh, yeah, you know what? They're right. We should do that. And they'll help the Reapers do what they're trying to do, which is wipe out all life in the galaxy. (coughs) Excuse me. So this indoctrination theory, the one that you're talking about, is like one where he's indoctrinated from the first game. Other people will say like, hey, at the end of the second game, there's DLC, which – rides right into the opening of, of Mass Effect 3, which are, hey, th- uh, the Reapers are coming. They're going to actually be here in two weeks. We found this uh, artifact, and it's uh, resonating with as a countdown clock to when they're going to get here. But there's a sequence in that uh, DLC where you're fighting off waves while this art- Reaper artifact is uh, emanating energy and doing its pulsing. And if you actually survive all the waves you just get knocked out by the pulsing. And a lot of people will say, hey, that's where the indoctrination started. He got hit there. He wakes up. You do everything. You say you stop the Reapers from showing up uh, in two weeks. But from that point on, you start getting indoctrinated. And it goes really well with like the narrative of Mass Effect 3, where in between acts, they have these uh, dream sequences that your character has about the horrors of what he's been going through throughout all three games. And people were able to pull like descriptions from indoctrination people from the other games matching some of the things that are happening here. Now I'm not one that who subscribes to the theory. Like I, I just I'm not a fan of it because it basically makes like everything you do pointless. Um, but it's cool that Bioware's like we're not gonna say yay or nay on it. It's cool that you guys came up with that and we didn't <laughs> write it into the game. Please debate because there's good arguments for how it's real and how it's not real. Um, depending on who you talk to. And some of that, like, Mass Effect fans can have conversations about for hours on. Um, and I'd rather have a conversation about the indoctrination theory and argue with somebody about that rather than hearing them tell me about how they hate the ending. Cause I'm like, you're just an idiot doesn't understand storytelling at that point. Like, 
let the character die. It's okay. You don't have to know <laughs> what happened to your girlfriend, dude. Come on, come on. If you die, you're not going to find out when you die. So it's realistic. Um, but Mass Effect, that's why it's such a great thing, right? Because like Star Wars, it's a, a new universe that nobody's ever seen before that's been so well put and built together throughout its franchise that books have been spun off of it, comics, uh, other video games have all come from this universe and try to expand to it uh, to, and which make it better and more fuller. And like this is like when we talked about Halo, I said Halo failed at Halo 4 specifically fails because they take elements from the books and bring it into the games assuming that you've read the books where Mass Effect does the same thing but they tell the story in a way where hey, if you want to know how this situation happened, how this one character who was the head of this city is now kicked off her city and trying to get it back, you can go read the comic and see how that happened. But you don't need to. You understand everything that's going on in the story. You know who she is. You understand her plight. You understand who her enemy is. And you can go help her out uh, and not have to have the backstory. And you don't feel like, hey, I'm missing something. I don't know who this character is. Or I don't know who they're talking about because I didn't read the comic. This is the proper way to integrate multimedia into your storytelling to where books, a lot of the books that came out, were, one of them is a prequel to the Mass Effect story, but basically focusing on uh, your character's mentor, uh, Captain Anderson, the, uh, and actually the villain of the first game, focusing on him and Saren. Uh, it's not needed to play to understand what's going their relationship in the first game, but it's more background information if you want it. Basically, those supplemental things is how you tell a story through multimedia. You don't put key characters, introduce them in a book, and then just assume everybody knows who they are when they get to the game. Right? It just doesn't work that way. Um, that's one of the reasons why like this franchise is so good because when I look at how entertainment has evolved throughout humanity's uh lifespan you started off with verbal words then pictures and then writings and then we move to a more technological uh, society right so then we go again the same path we have books we have radio we now have moving pictures then we have movies and so we have all the stuff that's passive in, uh, entertainment right and while video games have taken off so well and have still stuck around since the crash of 81 and all that stuff is because it's interactive media, right? But as we said, when you have loading screens, when you have elements, um, it lets you know that you're playing a game. When you think of the original arcade games, they're all about getting the highest score and having one dot on a, on a screen do something that interacts with something else on the screen. That that art form has now moved into where we tell complex stories, uh, and we enjoy them. And games at, are were interactive, but they're also passive in a way that hey, you're going to play as John Wick in this game, or you're going to play as Master Chief here. You're not playing yourself. You can put yourself in that character's shoes, but you're just going to be playing as that character, where Mass Effect lets you put yourself into the game and gave you a good enough character creator that you could make something that you could easily identify with yourself. Like, yes, that's me. I'm in this game. And that's the weirdest thing. When you play this game a lot and you watch other people play it, it's always weird when you see their shepherd because like, that's not what shepherd looks like. Because <laughs> you've just spent like hundreds of hours with your shepherd and then you see theirs. It's like, oh, that's weird. Um, 
But that's cool. That's the cool thing about it. Everybody has their own character. You put it in there, your character gets to make those decisions that you would make. And that's how everybody walks away with this from this franchise with different stories about how how they did it. Magic like that's only been caught a couple times. Like the movie Clue, when that came out, it has a bunch of different endings to it. When they released in theaters, different theaters only got one ending. So instead, when you watch it now and they say, hey, here's this ending, this ending, and this ending, people went to it and they only saw one ending. And when they went to go <laughs> talk to their friends about it, everybody had a different experience. Which generated more conversation, generated people wanting to get more involved in the lore. Doing that in a massive video game like this is one an incredible feat that like you have no idea how hard it is to convince publishers at that time, like, hey, this will make us money. Let me do this. That's a huge risk. Nowadays, with like how we said with Game Pass and how um, there's a almost a, a subscription service now that where you can generate money to produce games. Before, game, the game industry is always based on, will this make me money? How much was the return I'm going to get on this? And if it failed, you didn't get to tell your story. And that's why a lot of, a lot of game makers always tell one cohesive story within their game. And then sequels kind of struggle with story until they figure out what they want to tell next, right? And this is at a time where the games are coming out because it was planned so well. Like every two years, 2007, 2009... <laughs> was Mass Effect 2, and then like two th- or 2010 was Mass Effect 2, and then 2012 was Mass Effect 3. So they got the games out fairly quickly, so people weren't waiting six years for the next Bioshock like we did with Bioshock Infinite. And it didn't bankrupt the company because it's like, cool, we got the game out. We know what we're doing. We finished one, we jumped immediately into working in the other one. We know where the story's going. Didn't have to wait for somebody to write a script and come up with a plot. In terms of its epic story, because <laughs> personally, when I think of Mass Effect and why it's so amazing, it's really the story. It's it's not even so much the characters or the music, even though it's all very high production. It's really the story. And if I had to sum it up, the story is really a few points. And and when I think of anything entertainment, it's what, what do you get out of it that you could take with you, right? If you read a book, there's something about its ideas that are so strong that it, it, you can walk away with those ideas. And... Mass Effect is a story about how for for eons, every, what was it, uh, I think they said 50 million years or something like that. Every 50,000 years, I think. I think it was longer than 50,000, but I can't remember. But it was basically these long time spans would happen. And the, the these ancient creatures, which you're not really sure what they really are. They never really fully disclose what they are. They do disclose what the first Reaper is which was Leviathan, right? But they don't really, which is basically this big giant squid thing. But they never really tell you how it happened. This One day these things kind of came forward and they created Reapers. And Reapers was essentially their way of preventing one species from kind of infecting the galaxy, if you will. Because every species would kind of just spread and spread and spread and, and take resources. And, and one of their ways to kind of ensure things persisted was we're going to just take control. We're going to control you. And we're in every, you know, I think I, I want to say it was 50 million years, but I can't remember. We're going to go to the fringes of the galaxy and we're going to come back and then we're going to demolish everything. And what was so fascinating <laughs> is you, you get these hints of it early on, like the Citadel. The Citadel at first is this really cool facility. You just think is where everybody meets all these other species. And after humans find the Mass Effect relays. Right. But then you realize soon after that the, the Citadel is really the weapon to fight the, the Reapers. 
And the only way you're going to fight the Reapers is if you can set aside differences and gather allies in the fight against the Reapers. And there's so much of that that you can take with you. You know, you're the first, you're the first successful specter, right? There's a lot of judgments kind of placed on that. The humans are kind of looked down upon because they're the new entry into it. You're almost like Harry Potter, you know, and, and everyone's Draco Malfoy if I had to use a Harry Potter reference, because you're kind of looked down upon in the universe amongst all these species. But in actuality, you know, like the Asari say, uh, I believe it was Liara that says this. She says, their species live a thousand years. Humans live, you know, what, a hundred years roughly? So they were saying about how humans achieve so much because they have so little time, but her species doesn't achieve so much because they have so much time. They literally spend 50 years studying one thing because they have a thousand years to just waste 50 years, right? Whereas we're like, shit, <laughs> I got a hundred years. Maybe 50 of them will be good. So I got to get going. And that's why the humans kind of have this meteoric rise in the universe of mass effect and that's why they're so effective at fighting the reapers because they're not going to wait and take their time like every other species has because they've had some sense of complacency because of their advantages um so there's so much in the story you could take away from when it comes to you know the whole indoctrination theory there are people who take advantage of others even if they're good and turn them against you you know you have that side you have you being the first person and being persecuted for being the first even though you should be treated like a friend you have the reapers kind of setting this cycle of domination and you have to find a way to break that cycle there is so much richness in this series that it's hard to overlook how great it is it's it's like a good book very cerebral but then like you said great character creation great music great narrative great visuals great everything really it's 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 almost hitting a 10 on everything on, on every box you can check in terms of game production and personally uh you know if Shenmue was the beginning and if Yakuza was kind of a continuation Mass Effect was the peak of that sort of narrative where you could explore have combat and have decisions uh, I don't I really don't think any other game has ever exceeded it you know, and I'll say that, like, with Mass Effect, and when you compare it to other games, and, like, even today, like, one reason why I bring up music and why the score is so important, right? It's such a small thing in a movie, such a small thing in media that there's a music in the background that adds emotion to stuff. And normally, when you can watch a movie, you may not even realize how the music is impacting or even notice that there is music, right? But... When you play a game that doesn't have a soundtrack, that has no music or very or lacks a lot of it, it is noticeable. Like and a good example is Agents of Mayhem. That's a game made by the people who made Saints Row. Saints Row has lots of licensed music, which is really good. Agents of Mayhem has no licensed music, so you're playing the game with like no soundtrack. <laughs> and it just it just feels empty. And Outriders, which just came out, they have music and they have some of the soundtrack, but it's not in the great crescendos of like Halo or Mass Effect. So what you mostly hear all the time is just gunfire. And it's come to a point where like I, I'll play a game and it's like all I hear is noise because I all hear is machine guns and explosions and all this. And there's no like impact like, hey, I'm changing the tide of the fight because I'm winning. It's just noise, loud, loud noises all the time. Um and I understand the difficulty nowadays with licensing music or having to uh, hire composers and orchestras and all that. But when you take the time to do that and go all out, you get a masterpiece like the Mass Effect trilogy. Now you notice we're only talking about the trilogy because 
Andromeda is terrible on a lot of different, a lot of different <laughs> levels, uh, and it's because the Mass Effect trilogy is what Casey Hudson designed and made, and and like that's that's what this guy is like. He may have another like epiphany, another like thing to be remembered for for his life, but right now this is what he was meant to do was make this write this story, right? <laughs> Andromeda is just EA saying, hey, we need to make money off the Mass Effect franchise. Let's make another game. And people not having a story, not having an idea, ham-fisting things into this universe. Um, and we all have a, we have a completely different podcast on why Mass Effect Andromeda is absolute garbage. Um, but you look at, nowadays you look at games and we can see how publishers are corrupting it, how... Uh, shareholders are corrupting the process and get, people who are getting involved in it and we're making bad games out of it. This is identical to the movie industry where back then you had really good, uh, very art house movies that are being made because people were just making movies. And now then you have producers now getting it uh, and distribution houses and studios now saying, no, I don't understand your plot. You need to change it. So it's like this. And people are doing that because those are people who have the money, right? Like we said in the Game Pass uh, podcast, we I see that changing in the future because things can get financed differently now. But this is a glimpse of what what letting somebody have their vision and refining that vision to just perfection is what Mass Effect One, Two, and Three is. I think if things didn't come into play, like if EA didn't buy Bioware, this wouldn't have been that good. That it wouldn't have been as good of a franchise because. The things that got refined that made it better and made it more appealing to the masses wouldn't have been put in there, right? Uh, because they they didn't have somebody from the outside looking and saying, "Hey, this needs to be kind of changed." You just had people, uh, you just had the artists doing their stuff, and a lot of times artists need to be filtered because you do get some weird shit when they don't. That's one reason why, like, if you look at Kotor, you had a bunch of D and D guys make a Star Wars game. They put D and D combat. In a video game, which when I look at that, at those dreams, like this is so stupid, dude. Just make the highest, no, the highest uh, number of weapon more powerful than the lowest number of weapon. Not saving throws and shit that I don't see. But that's because you get too much nerd in the nerdiness. You need to have somebody come back and say, "Hey, let's make this more approachable and do this and edit these things." Mass Effect does that exact thing throughout its franchise. It tells a great story, gives you a great universe to where not only is the game telling you a great story? If you're a fan, you can t- you have the, all the building blocks to tell your own story in this universe if you wanted to. That's the great things about Star Wars and the Harry Potter universe. And the, the, all the movies that people generally love and uh, people make their own stories off and you see fanfics of is because it's so fleshed out. That's why comic book movies are great. That's why Indiana Jones and Spielberg movies are great. They great universes where... Hey, I don't have to copy your story, but I can copy your world and tell my own story in a world just like it. And that makes people connect to the art better. And like, that's why I'm such a huge fan of Mass Effect, because to me, this is the epitome of what art raises, rises up to. And human, the thing I think separates human beings from the rest of Animal Kingdom is that we can make and create art and appreciate it where everything else is just out there to survive and they do things based off of survival where we're like, Hey, I want to make something pretty and colorful that you can interact with and tell a story that'll make you cry. Like that has nothing to do with survival. That's just, I want to feel something. 
you get that with the Mass Effect franchise, where other things out there like Battle Royale games, there's no emotion in fucking Fortnite or PUBG. It's just interactivity. It's the same thing as Galica or Space Invaders. It was interactivity. This is where that was leading to, and we got the epitome of it with Mass Effect, and we can see even, and I'm excited to see where we can go next with storytelling and interactivity. The moment when they can get you like a full realistic body scan of yourself in the game, and it looks like it looks like you're looking through a window instead of a, a computer screen, is going to be amazing. Hopefully, I'm alive when that happens. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool if they actually got that far. Even though there was, you know, sports titles that kind of let you take a photo of your face in this, this game, never obviously. <laughs> yeah, it looked terrible. I mean, they kind of did a way to to capture you. I could never make my character look like myself in Mass Effect One, Two, or Three, um, but you know. I'm curious to see where things are going to go. Mass Effect 4 has kind of been loosely announced, not really hard. hard there's no hard announcements. I think first we're going to get this re-release, and then I guess we'll, well see. Well, there's the definitely been an announcement. There, there's a trailer for Mass Effect 4, a teaser trailer. There's no idea what the story is going to be, um, but what they put in that trailer definitely means Liara is in it, and Liara is, what you said, in Asari, who lives for a thousand years, uh, who's an archaeologist, so she's, and that trailer is having her dig up uh, old N7 armor which is which was armor like your character used to wear and other other high-ranking military characters would be part of this special forces group so there's something that's going to happen there it's definitely going to take place most likely in the milky way galaxy and not the andromeda galaxy that andromeda did um which will be interesting to see all right cool they're going to tell another story within this universe with maybe some of the old characters or or something different it and that's where like we say when we talk about halo we want to see another story told in the Halo universe that's not Master Chief. Just tell us something else. There's more shit going on in the universe than just what's happening to this one guy. Um, I think Mass Effect is definitely a place to do this. Why you have Star Wars being such a huge franchise is that the first three movies or whatnot, or most of those movies are based off of the Skywalker saga and that, that family's lifespan. But then you have stuff like uh, Rogue One and Solo, which are like, hey, here's stories that are just within the universe, and they're just as good. So hopefully we see Mass Effect 4 go that route. I'm interested to see where they do with it. But if you haven't played this game, you got to play it. It's coming out on May 14th of 2021. Uh, I'll be streaming it all the way through from Mass Effect 1 to Mass Effect 3. So you can find watch that on our webpage at www.forthrightgaming.com or on our Twitch page at twitch.tv slash found at the end. Um, also, you can hit us up on our Facebook page called Forthright Gaming. Uh, you'll be able to catch everything there and on our YouTube page, Forthright Gaming. So that's basically our spiel on this. Uh, you got anything else you want to add? Um, really, if you're playing this right now, it currently exists on the 360. There is a collector's edition, and there's a lot of DLC. I would recommend, if you have the pockets for it, just get the DLC. There's a lot of additional stuff for it. Talking about the re-release, the only major difference I've found so far is it's just not going to have Pinnacle Station and Multiplayer. Multiplayer, most people could live without. Pinnacle Station is a bit of a loss in my book because uh, it's, it does help build some more of the world. Um... So I'm kind of curious what if that had a major impact. I don't think it had a major impact on the story. I don't think it does because a lot of people had a, the how the combat was in Mass Effect One. It's not the easiest combat or the best. Uh, clearly, it's not as refined as two and three. To get everything in uh, Pinnacle Station, you had to be at the top of a leaderboard 
and it's very hard <laughs> to do that. Um, that's why most people don't realize that there's an apartment that you can have in Mass Effect 1, which is the reward you get at finishing Pinnacle Station. Um, so it was an end game type of type of element back before they understood what they needed to do for end game stuff in video games because there were no games as a service. It's a shame it's not going to be there, um, but that comes down to you know the process of making games when you outsource work to another company to make a small a DLC for you. Their source code got corrupted; they can't get it back. It's gone. Other one of the nice things I do like about the remaster is they did go back. They changed some of the combat in the first one. They've changed it so you can no you're no longer locked to only being able to use certain weapons depending on your character class. Every character class can now use every weapon in the game. Um, the elevators that a lot of people complain about, they did not take them out, but they did give you the option to skip it. Um, <laughs> but they do go a lot faster. But you still get those conversations like like what we enjoyed of the characters bantering back and forth. Uh, if you take the elevator, it's just when their conversation's over, the elevator is going to stop and you'll be at your location instead of it's like cool awkward silence in the elevator like in real life (laughs) um but they did most of the work on the first game uh and then they basically just tightened things up and made parody for two and three so everything kind of flows more together because if you're like if you're a fan of the franchise and you played the first game two and three are completely different from it where now they've kind of taken the things that people like about two and three and put it all throughout the entire game and then they yeah. rebalance three so you don't have to do multiplayer. People don't feel like they have to complete multiplayer missions in order to get the best ending. It'll definitely be interesting to see it. I, I would say my only curiosity is how the final endings are when it comes to three. Are they going to go with the original endings? Are they going to go with the extended endings? They're going endings or to go else? with the extended endings, what they're going to say is the canon ending now. Yeah, so, the, those storyboards are a little rough. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe they'll improve that. I don't know. I seriously doubt they're going to. They redid the cutscenes for it, um, other than the Shepard breathing at the end of the red ending. But uh, that is now the official canon ending is the extended one. Um, like you said, there's a lot of DLC for this. So if you want to try it, you want to check it out beforehand. It is available in backwards compatibility for Xbox. Um, it is on the PlayStation 3. I believe I Correct. don't know if they do backwards compatibility on four. Um, and if you have EA play or actually it's not EA play where we have game pass, all three games are there as well. It is, I would say, Hey, if you're that hardcore of a gamer, play, th- play through the originals and then see how it's different on the collector's edition or the collection edition is going to be the full 4k, um, fully uh, upgraded to today's specs game that you can play. The PC version will even support uh, 21x9s, uh, ultra-wide monitors, uh, high-end graphics. It'll do all that. They did not put it in Unreal 4 engine, unfortunately, but that's just because Unreal 4 looks so different from Unreal 3 that they felt it was going to be too jarring to do any changes. Uh, but I think this will be a nice definitive package, much like the Halo Master Chief Collection. As we said, if you want to try Halo, just get that. This will be the definitive thing to get for um, Mass Effect. Uh, just grab the Legendary Edition coming out on May 14th. Uh, honestly, if you're a fan of it, we would love to hear from you because I'd love to hear what you think. Do you believe in, in indoctrination theory? Do you not believe in it? Uh, do you hate the original ending? Do you like the new ones? Tell us about it. Man. We'll have a conversation about it because... That's one thing that I could talk about for days and days and days on is Mass Effect, which you'll see me do when I stream uh, the entire franchise coming next month. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually curious to hear what people's thoughts are. Because I know it's been a few years. Andromeda came out. There are people who like Andromeda. Um, I was, I think it's safe to say we're not in that boat, but I'm kind of curious to see if there's things that people have experienced that kind of makes, makes it a better experience for you. Everyone kind of has different eyes when it comes to seeing things. So very curious to see that. I, I am I'm not on the forthright gaming Twitter and, and, and website, but you can reach me. I'm, I'm under timeless underscore cinema on Twitter. And I talk about a lot of games. I particularly am more of a retro gamer, uh, play the crap out of mass effect. I still need to finish my third playthrough of Mass Effect 3 uh, through the through the end of Samuel L. Jackson, who is basically full renegade. So we'll see about that. That's that's definitely be awesome to see. So thank you for listening. Catch us at forthrightgaming.com, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. And uh, thank you for listening. Find our podcast at wherever you find podcasts at, whether it be iOS, Apple, Alexa, wherever, Google. Listen to us. Let us know what you think. We have comments on uh, on our webpage for the podcast, and we'll get back to you. We'd love to have a conversation. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next time. You have a good one.